and good evening everybody welcome back to the Mythgard Academy this is session number 16 of our discussion of the nature of Middle-earth what should be more or less our penultimate session on part two of the nature of Middle-earth as we get into some really meaty stuff here this evening uh, it's time to do the fate and free will stuff which I know I've been looking forward to um, and I've been particularly looking forward to this because this is one of the first times in Tolkien's writings where he has explicitly addressed um, uh, explicitly addressed a question that has been a, uh, a question for a while. Um, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but it's the, it's the do elves have free will question. That's been an actual debate uh, in Tolkien, the Tolkien world uh, and Tolkien scholarship for some time. Um, and it was delightful to see that clearly addressed. I've always thought it was a... Well, I've never thought it was a, an excellent <laughs> debate, but it's been a debate uh, in its way. So um, we're, um, uh, uh, we're, we're uh, doing that. And, oh, I see. So uh, Justin was saying that there's some uh, folks doing a, a book club with each other and watching the Boethius class. Well, now is a wonderful time to bring that up uh, as it's... Directly will be directly relevant today, um, and uh, you have questions. Cool, yeah. Let's um, by all means send me an email, and we'll see uh, we'll see what we can do. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Send me an email. I'd be happy to talk with that. It's one of the things that um, I, I'm looking. I, I'm looking over at my bookshelf with uh, you know the books with uh, which we've been discussing in uh, Mythgard Academy so far, and uh, one of the the it's fun to have you know this increasing library of you know book discussions that we've completed in Mythgard Academy over the years um and that's really cool like it's really fun you know I, I get notes sometimes from people who have you know found one or other of uh, our old discussions that they've come across and stuff um but it is true that you know I I, I know that uh, people who are listening asynchronously like that will have questions or you know want to uh want to discuss some stuff so yeah, we can uh, we can we can see what we can do there, Jocelyn. No problem. Um, and um, yeah, okay. Oh, cool. Devor says she's going through Dracula right now. Oh man, Dracula one, one of my favorites. One of my favorites. Um, totally gonna write a Dracula book one of these days. Anyway, let's um. Uh, two quick things. One of them is compound, uh, and that is uh, uh, moot update. Uh, so we've been having some, I think I've mentioned this before, we've been having some moot struggles. Uh, a lot of the regional moots we've been hoping to have this spring, we've been that we've been having troubles. Um, troubles finding and securing venues. It's been a little more challenging than usual and we're, you know, we're not wanting to sort of push ridiculously uh, on that as there are lots of things going on. So we're kind of rolling with things as they go. However, the way things have rolled of late is uh, that two of our moots have come together, and they've come together almost on top of each other. Uh, so we've had no regional moots for some time. It's been since, uh, it's been now three months uh, since the beginning of November, and we were always planning to have some moot-free time there around the holidays. Um, but 
We're back in action now. So we have uh, Texmoot is happening. Uh, Texmoot is going down on the 26th of March, Saturday, March 26th in Austin, Texas. Texmoot is going to be happening. Registration not open yet, but it'll be open in just a couple days. Um, hopefully before the end of this week, um, it will be up. Um, and uh, so Texmoot is happening in Austin, Texas on the 26th of March. And then Sunshine Moot is happening in Florida, uh, in, the, in the Orlando area, um, in, uh, when is it? The next week, April 2nd. So two weeks in a row, I'll be in Austin one week, in Orlando the next weekend. I'm going to be uh, bouncing around here uh, in a couple months. Um, so um, anyway, that is... That is what is going to happen. We're doing uh, Sunshine Moot on the 2nd of April and Tex Moot on the 26th of March. So if you are near any of those areas, I uh, would encourage you. I hope you'd be able to come and join us uh, physically uh, for the Moot. It's always a wonderful time getting to not only get together to have discussion together, but also, uh, you know, spend some time, uh, you know, hanging out, usually go out to eat or something afterwards. Um, Really excited about that and uh, to be able to connect with folks there again. And of course, we also have the option for folks to participate uh, digitally as well. If you can't make it uh, to Austin, Texas or to Orlando, Florida, then we would be happy uh, for you to uh, uh, be able to join us uh, uh, digitally. So those things are uh, those things are all possible and it is happening so as i say look uh by the end of this week uh, i'll let you guys know next week if it's definitely you know it certainly should be open by next mo- next week's class but uh we should be uh hopefully bef- by before the end of this week so keep an eye out for that that is the uh um that is the exciting news uh there um <laughs> yeah, Cecilia says my son gets to go to Disney World again. I'm not sure. Maybe not this year. Uh, uh, maybe not this year. There's a lot of other stuff going on. Um, but um, anyway, so that is uh, um, one thing that's happening. The other thing that's happening that I wanted to mention, um, and this is not a this is not a Signum event. This is just a, a kind of a personal uh, announcement, but I just wanted to share uh, in large part because some of you, it's, this is the fault of some of you guys, actually. Um, in several of our discussions uh, over the last couple of years, uh, several of you have off have uh, commented on, uh, you know, that uh, it would be really fun to do a similar kind of study as we've been doing to do a to do a Bible study together, and it's something I've been thinking about, and I finally decided I'm going to do that. So um, I am starting this again. This is just a, a private, personal project. This is not a Signum thing. It's not Mythgard Academy. This is just my own separate thing. Um, but I'm gonna I'm starting a Bible study on Sunday afternoon, so it'll be Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, if you go, I made a little little rinky-dink website uh, called studentsoftheword.org, students, plural, of the word.org. Um, and you can go to that little web page and you'll see there's a Zoom link, there's a register button where you can go to the uh, to register for the Zoom session. Um, I'm not going to be broadcasting. I will be recording it so that um, if you can't attend live, you should, I'm going to put it up on YouTube and a podcast feed and stuff. Uh, so just wanted to let people know that that was a thing that's happening. Um, if you uh, were interested in joining me, just 
an, inv an invitation there. I know it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. No big deal. Um, but just wanted to let you know that's happening. We're going to be beginning a uh, discussion of First John. The first epistle of John is going to be the text that we're going to be discussing. It's a pretty short book, so we should be able to get through it in a year, year and a half probably. Um, because I'm not going to go very fast through First John. Um, and if you're wondering why I'm talking about First John, it's because I don't understand it. That's why we're talking about First John. Um, uh, so I'm looking forward to learning more about First John. Um, so anyway, that is, uh, uh, I, I, I would be delighted to have any or all of you join me. Uh, I just, you know, wanted to kind of open the door there. Um, so, all right, let us go back into the nature of Menorah. So we just finished the Asanwe Kenta, which was phenomenal. Uh, you know, again, that has just like rocketed uh, to the top. Um, uh, well, not the very top. It's not better than, you know, the uh, Athrobeth, but it's uh, pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> so um, we... Um, uh, <clears throat> uh, we are going to um, jump into the, to, we're, we're going to continue from there, chapter 10, I think. Uh, my goal, as I said last time, was to finish the rest of part two in the next, this, this, this week and next week. Uh, so we'll see, uh, we'll see how we do. Um, all right. First, first we go back to this question of uh, heart. And you'll remember that Tolkien had been saying that the word heart, that is the elvish word for the organ in your chest that pumps your blood, is not the word that they use, uh, you know, sort of metaphorically in the way that humans have traditionally used it metaphorically to mean the seat of emotion or feeling um, uh, or sincerity uh, like that. Um, my, uh, uh, my son was translating the sentence, but who on the hound was... Uh, true of heart <laughs> into Latin today, and we ended up talking about this. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, my son is taking Latin and really enjoying it, and he keeps translating all kinds of things into Latin. Um, he was uh, showing me that he was he was he's been working on a translation, <laughs> translating the uh, uh, the video game options screen of one of the video games that he's playing <laughs> into Latin, uh, which is a really fun translation uh, uh, challenge, actually. But anyway, um, heart. Thinking about heart, we were talking about the translation of heart. So more on that. All right. The elves thought there was no fundamental difference in the given faculties. But for the reasons of the separate history of elves and men, they were differently used. Above all, the difference of their bodies. That is, I, th sorry, I'm totally blanking on my context here uh, for this passage. Somebody remind me what was in the, if you have a digital text, find what was in the paragraph before. I think he's talking about the, um, the spirits, uh, that the, um, because the, bodies are different, the spirits. Well, well, I'll keep reading and then we'll come back uh, to make sure we're understanding properly. I, I usually try to get the context of the beginning of the, of the passage a little bit better than this came across. I apologize for that. The elves thought there was no fundamental difference in the given faculties, but, for, but that for reasons of the separate history of elves and men, they were differently used. Above all, the difference of their bodies, which were nonetheless of the same structure, had a marked effect. The human body was, or had become, more easily injured or destroyed, and was in any case doomed to decay by age and to die, with or without the will to do so. 
after a brief time. This imported into human thought and feeling haste. All desires of the mind and body were far more imperious in men than in elves. Peace, patience, and even the full enjoyment of present good were greatly lessened in men. By an irony of their fate, though their personal expectation of it was brief, men were always thinking of the future, more often with hope than dread, though their actual experience gave little reason for the hope. By a similar irony, the elves, whose expectation of the future was indefinite, though before them, however far off, loomed the shadow of an end, were ever more and more involved in the past and in regret, though their memories were in fact laden with sorrows. Men, they said, certainly possessed or had possessed ore, that is the, the, um, that's the, the heart, right? The, uh, the word that he's, the central word that he's talking about there. Um, thank you, Stephen. I know I could count on you for this. Let's see. So uh, the context there, what, what the ore was for elvish thought and speech and the nature of its counsels, it says and so advises, but it's never represented as commanding, requires for its understanding a brief account of Elderin thought on the matter. For this purpose, the question whether this thought has any validity as judged by human philosophy or psychology, present or past, is of no importance. Nor do we need to consider whether elvish minds differed in their faculties and their relation with their bodies. Right. So we're talking about we're, uh, we're talking about, yeah, sort of mind and psychology. Um, but again, the, 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 the overall topic of discussion, again, is the heart, uh, the ore, the, the, the sort of, I was about to say will, but that's a weighted question uh, in uh, the context of, of tonight here. Um, okay, anyway, men, they said, certainly possessed or had possessed ore, but owing to the haste spoken of above, they paid little attention to it. And there was another reason more dark connected the elves' thought with human death the ore of men was open to evil counsel and was not safe to trust. In other words, the elves found that the heart of men was desperately wicked, or something like that, vaguely. Um, uh, sorry, little Jeremiah quote there. Um, in other words, I, I, and I raise that uh, because... This passage seems to me to bear very interestingly on the question that has come up several times during the discussions here in the nature of Middle-earth, and that is the question of what it means and to what extent elves and men are fallen, right? What that like, to, What is their relationship with sin, temptation? Um, are they perfect? Are elves perfect and sinless? Well, no, we know they obviously can do wrong, right? So we've talked about this before, um, where Tolkien was insisting that elves do not have, um, again, unlike what traditional Catholic doctrine, uh, you know, always has been about the human heart, which is, you know, inclined, uh, is inex inescapably inclined towards sin. Um, that elvish hearts are not like elves don't like they do they can obviously can and, and there are many examples but they don't have to um, and we've been kind of feeling our way looking at some examples where Tolkien himself seems to be thinking about and addressing this question well in this passage it, there's some very interesting thing that he's things that he's doing in really for the first time in this way the first time that we've seen it here in this way he's really kind of putting elvish hearts and human hearts side by side in this way and looking at what are the consequences what are the you know um, what are the impact how we're trying to understand 
elvish psychology and elvish language about their psychology, right? The words like ore that they use to describe, um, you know, that, um, you know, sort of deep seat of, uh, of, uh, of feeling. And looking at how men and elves are wired differently. Notice where he begins. Above all, the difference of their bodies had a marked effect, right? So the psychology of elves and men, the fundamental psychology of elves and men, differs, and the first difference starts with the difference in their bodies, right? Um, why? Where does that difference... Notice the difference that he points to. The human body was or had become more easily injured or destroyed and was in any case doomed to decay by age and to die with or without the will to do so after a brief time. Okay, so, of course, on one level, that's a really long-winded way of saying um, elves are... You know, humans are mortal and elves are not mortal, right, in the same way. Uh, and so, of course, that leads to a difference in their uh, psychology. That's pretty clear, and that's been explored in a whole bunch of different ways. But he's not... I think it's, it's, it's more than just that, right? What is the... Um, what is the impact on their psychology of their experience of being, you know, sort of so transient, right? Um, how easily their body is injured or destroyed. Um, the consequence, right? Um, yeah, oh, Elana, I agree with you. He's not authoring this as someone, Tolkien doesn't seem to be authoring this as someone who knows all of this. He's translating found texts here. This is what elves think. Yeah, he's trying to understand, based on the evidence, right, of their language. Uh, he is trying to, uh, you know, of these, as you say, of these found texts, uh, he's trying to understand it, right? He's trying to, to, to um, see if he can figure out how this works. Um, and Alana, I, as I believe you're suggesting, and I, and I agree with you, um, uh, well, if you're suggesting what I think you're suggesting, then I agree with you, uh, that he is, um, he's not here explaining why he made a particular linguistic choice, right? He's sort of taking the, the linguistic choice and then he's building sort of the story on top of that. And I would, you know, or like, you know, no, not on top of. He's telling the story that he's finding in the, you know, in the language, right? And this is, remember, where the stories all came from. You know, we've ta we talked about this before. We've looked at a couple examples of this over the course of the last few books we've done in uh, the History of Middle-Earth series. Uh, but it's... It's only through our studies together of the history of Middle-earth that I have come to understand, I think, what Tolkien meant when he said that um, the Silmarillion material, that all of his, you know, his stories and his mythology were all originally linguistic in, in, in origin. Um, uh, it really is where the stories come from. Um, and that's what he... So he's not... Uh, he doesn't have a story, and he's trying to fit the language to it. Um, he here has this linguistic concept, and he's trying to match it to the story. So anyway, um, you know, he's, he's, he's trying to figure out the story that matches it. That's a better way to say it. Anyway, um, his description of the human experience, the haste, right? That haste is the hallmark 
of the human experience. All the desires, all desires of the mind and the body were far more imperious in men than in elves. See how this maps onto that question of sort of sinfulness or fallenness, right? Um, both elves and men have the ability to screw up, right? They can do bad things, right? They can make bad choices and harmful choices, harmful to themselves and to others, right? Why is it more, is that seem more dominant in men? I mean, he's said before that elves don't do that as often. Like, and it's quite possible for an elf to just like not screw things up, right? To live a peaceful, good life. I mean, they, they can just be good people as they're called in the Hobbit. Um, whereas men rarely like manage that, right? Why is that? Well, okay, here's one reason um, that the desires of the mind and the body were far more imperious in men than in elves. Men have a really hard time resisting it. Like, they, sometimes they can't even resist it. Like, it's just they... Um, and again, this sounds to me... I might be wrong, but what I am hearing lurking behind that sentence... I am hearing... I'm hearing St. Augustine, right? I'm, 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 I'm seeing in the distance the silhouette of St. Augustine behind that sentence, if you see what I mean. Um, again, what he's just... He's not using... He's deliberately, of course, um, not thinking in terms in the vocabulary of Christian theology or of, you know, like traditional patristic theology or something like that, meaning the, the, the theology of the, the Latin fathers uh, in the Catholic tradition, uh, like St. Augustine. Uh, I, he's not talking that way, right? He's not invoking any of that stuff uh, uh, explicitly because that's not the way that he... Um, that's not the way that he's thinking. He's, he's not in that mode, right? He's thinking within elf mode. He's thinking in Middle Earth context, um, but yet, what he, where he has come to, what he's describing, sounds to me like the way that elves perhaps would understand original sin. You know, um, peace, patience, and even full enjoyment of present good were greatly lessened in men. So, does that mean that men are? worse, more sinful, right? Nelves are better across the board. No, that's not where he goes by this, right? What he points out then are, he then points an interesting thing, right? By an irony of their fate, though their personal expectation of it was more brief, men were always thinking of the future. <clears throat> men are so brief, they have very little future to look forward to, right? I mean, you've got, what, your three score and ten or whatever, like, you, you know, you, you've got less than a century total to live in the world by the time you really are thinking about it, probably less than that because people don't usually think about that when they're kids. So, you know, you have only a handful of decades, right? This sparse amount of time compared to the Elvish lifespan. Um, you know, less than the equivalent of one year, right, uh, uh, for the elves, uh, that 144. Um, you've got this tiny little future ahead of you, and yet men are always thinking about it. They're always thinking about the future. Um, men are always thinking about the future, more often with hope than dread. And that's the thing. It's not just that they're thinking about the thinking grimly about the future, right? And stewing about the future they don't have. Men tend to be looking towards the future and they often tend to like more, more often than not, they're being hopeful about the future. Men are more hopeful about the future than elves are hopeful about the future. Like men tend to think hopefully towards the future more often than elves do. 
which is ironic. It's an irony of their fate, he says. Even though their actual experience does not give them much reason for hope, right? They're not basing that, you know, on their observations, right? And yet, despite their observations, the fact that the world tends to not be very pleasant most of the time, they, in fact, are, um, uh, they tend, there's this strong tendency within humans to look towards the future with hope. By a similar irony, the elves whose expectation of the future was indefinite. I mean, if anybody could look towards the future with reasonable calmness and hope, it'd be the elves, right? You'd think the elves would be all about the future, right? Oh, the vistas of time stretching up. I've got so much time to think and accomplish. And, and oh, think, you know, if they were thinking like humans, right? I mean, you tell a human, oh, I'm going to extend your lifespan by 200 years. What's a human going to do? Human's going to be like, oh, man, so much I can do, so much I can accomplish. That's not how elves think, right? What do they think about? They think about the past. They think about the past. Whose expectation was of the future was indefinite were ever more and more involved in the past and in regret, though their memories were in fact laden with sorrows. So they, their memories are laden with sorrows, and that's where they focus, not to the future with hope, right? Um, and again, you'd think, uh, since their expectation of the future was indefinite, you might think that uh, they would be, at least for a long time, focused on the future instead of the past, right? Um, you know, when so much of their lives are still in the future, but no. So you've got both. Neither one of them makes much sense, right? That is to say, there's. Um, this is one of the things that I found most fascinating about this passage. It begins in a way, <coughs> excuse me, which seems to explain, perhaps from an elvish point of view, why humans are more messed up than, than elves, right? That uh, more imperious, great, greater imperiousness of the desires of their minds and body, right? Um, that would explain it, you know, why humans are more messed up on average, you know, than elves. But that's not where he goes. That's not where he rests anyway in this passage. Instead, he then looks at them and says, let's look at their basic psychology and what they tend to think about and how they tend to, how they tend to go. And, huh, both of them actually are doing a counterintuitive thing, which doesn't actually make much sense. Right. There's like there's issues. Right. There's weirdness. There's ironies in both of them. Like neither one of them seems to be pointed in quite the right direction, if you see what I mean. Um, That is to say, it seems to me that he's suggesting that both of them are, you know, both of them are affected by art and mart. Right. Both of them are marred. Both elves and men are they're marred differently. It doesn't look anything like the same. Um, and the outcomes are not going to be the same. Marred elves are unlikely to look just like marred humans, right? A marred human, how is a human likely to mar themselves through their own choices, right? How are they likely to go bad? Well, by submitting to those imperious desires of the mind and body, which the more one submits to them, the more imperious they become, right? You know, to kind of go down that road. Um, yeah. yeah, whereas elves... They may go bad, and some of them might go bad in ways that look kind of like that, but that's not going to be the normal route, right, of, uh, of going astray. 
when an elf goes astray, it's going to go astray in a different way. Are they? Do they tend to go astray? Well, yeah, look. I mean, their orientation, like their basic sort of psychical and spiritual orientation, is every bit as messed up as humans are, right? Or at least every bit as ironical. I don't want to say it's only just messed up. I mean, the, the tendency of men to be thinking of the future with hope is not a bad thing, right? I'm not saying that's messed up that humans uh, think that. Um, but... Um, uh, but anyway, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but nevertheless, like it sh- suggests that something is off, right? Some like there's there's a disjunction between the way that the human heart is oriented and the world around them, right? It's not. It's it speaks at least on that level to uh, the marring uh, of Arda. And again, the elves' irony, I think, does uh, does that as well uh, in another sense. But then notice where he gets there at the very end. Um, uh, the Ore of Men was open to evil counsel and was not safe to trust. That, and he'll talk a little bit more about what exactly that means, being open to evil counsel. Um, the hearts of men, not that they use that word, um, but as we've seen in the Lord of the Rings, it's still a good translation of that concept, right? Um, it, um, uh, it is open to evil counsel and not safe to trust. This is where we come back to those statements that he made about how no elf had ever... Um, served Melkor in their heart and had truly converted to them. And we were looking last time at that question of that unwill, right? That no elf, even elves that had served Morgoth, like Maeglin, had still not in their, had not surrendered the unwill of their hearts. Um, They had still not completely opened themselves unto Morgoth. Um, and when he made that claim a while back, right, when we read that claim a while back that no elf had ever served Morgoth in a you'll remember, I was skeptical at that point, right? Um, I was like, it seems like special pleading, right? I, I found that unconvincing. Um, it seemed like a, a, a sort of an increasingly desperate attempt to say, oh, but, you know, elves don't have original, uh, uh, they don't have original sin, just like, trust me, right? Um, when it didn't really seem to fit as well as so many of the other things that he says with the established story, now we're beginning to see the refinement that seems to underlie that statement, right? Um, it's, uh, we had not yet read the parts where he is really describing about what it means to serve Morgoth in your heart. But the idea seems to be that there are men who definitely do that. That's much more common in men. Well, I guess if it never happens in elves, it would be, by definition, more common if it happened at all. Um, But there is a tendency um, for that to happen um, with, um, uh, with, with men, where it doesn't happen. With elves. Now, Stephen was saying, would it be similar to Gollum and Sauron? Yes, exactly. Gollum is serving Sauron, um, but his heart, he he obviously does not surrender his unwill uh, towards Sauron. Um, uh, Again, his spirit 
and will under the influence of pain or fear of pain as Gollum was clearly tortured, explicitly tortured. Um, um, I'm pretty sure he uses the word tormented. Torment is the... Tolkien doesn't use the word torture very much. Torment is the word that he... It's a synonym. Like, when he says the word torment, he means what we would generally use the word torture to describe. Um, it's an interesting historical question that I have no idea of and uh, no idea what the answer uh, is to, and I... Um, don't have time to get into it. When did we start using the word torture almost exclusively to refer to that? Um, but I, I have no idea. But anyway, Tolkien clearly uses the word torment um, uh, predominantly. Anyway, whatever. Um, Gollum was tormented in the tower um, and gave up all the... You know, and, and spoke, right? But we saw... This was Melkor's plan. This was how he, one of the ways in which he used language, right? And yet, though Gollum spoke and told Sauron things, his, and agreed to do things, made promises even, right? But the unwill of his, um, his unwill, right? His unwill was still, uh, turned in that direction, um, Ooh, Jocelyn, no, we haven't discussed the uh, orcs and the surrender of the will. Um, no, no, that's but I, that's exactly smack dab into the do orcs have. I mean, if anything, Jocelyn, I would say we're not going to talk about this too much right now because that's a whole thing, of course. Right. But I will say this. Um, it seems to me all of this stuff that he's refining here. Uh, the Ore stuff, the the unwill stuff um, in the Osanwe Kenta, um, it is. Um, it does not help <laughs> the orc problem. It makes it worse, right? It makes it worse. Um, if orcs are creatures, right? I mean, if they are. If they were originally children of Iluvatar, then it doesn't matter what was done to them, right? If Morgoth captured elves originally and did whatsoever he wanted to them, he could not. He had not the power to overcome their unwill, right? If anything, this doctrine of the unwill that he was that he was expounding in the Osanwe Kenta makes it almost impossible to believe that orcs could ever have been corrupted elves because he it, it is an axon right it is a like a natural law uh, it is an inescapable way things work in Ea that he cannot Morgoth cannot overcome the unwill of a creature by force can't happen no matter what he did so you can wave your hands and talk about by you know long stages of corruption and torment or whatever and it, it nothing you do will add up to getting around that absolute decree um um no christopher if i'm remembering correctly the unati were the laws oh no wait you're right. I'm wrong. The, it was an unat. That's what the axon are the rules. The unat, the unati. You're right. Thank you, Christopher, for for correcting me. Um, uh, yes, yes. Um, 
the Unati are the the inescapable laws of nature, and the Aksani are the are the the the, the rules the rules. Um, yes. Okay. Anyway. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway. So so Jocelyn, I I won't we won't talk about orcs anymore, but I will go so far as to say, in as much as this stuff relates to the orc question, it makes the orc question harder, <laughs> harder and harder to solve. Right? It makes it f- impossible that they could have been elves or men, not possible. But that last thing, the ore of men was open to evil counsel, does happen with men more often. But um, we'll um um. We'll see. We'll see. Um, okay. Let's keep going. Ore, in non-technical languages, in non-technical language, glossed heart, inner mind, nearest equivalent of heart in our application to feelings or emotions, courage, fear, hope, pity, etc., including baneful ones. But it is also used more vaguely of things arising in the mind or entering the mind, sonar, which the Eldar regarded as sometimes the result of deep reflection, often proceeding in sleep, and sometimes of actual messages or influences on the mind, from other minds, including the greater minds of the Valar, and so indirectly, from Eru. So at this period, it was supposed Eru even spoke directly to his children. Spoke in quotations there. Hence, the frequent expression Orenya Quetenin, my heart tells me, used of some deep feelings to be trusted, that some course of action, etc., is to be approved. We got some handwriting issues here, maybe approved, or will happen, possibly. Thus, in Quenya was often associated with or, uh, the or root, up or rise, as if it were arising, things that arise and come up into the sonar, disturbing or coloring or warning it, and often actively determining its judgment. Namie, a single judgment or desire. Sanwe, thought. To Nama, a judgment or desire. To Indo, resolve or will. To action. Right? That's how the, the process would go, right? The thought would lead to a judgment, would lead to resolve, would lead to action. But it is probably another case of lost H, of course, as he's just still thinking about the linguist. This is still a linguistic essay at the end of the day, right? All this stuff was a digression, in a sense. Um, uh, okay, so you see what's happening here? This is so cool, right? We've, we've already looked at the heart thing, right? What heart meant to elves. We've looked at the um, both outward and receptive communication, um, mind-to-mind communication, right? Here's how this all goes together. So, when somebody says, when an elf says, my heart tells me, right? What do they mean by that? Or the quote that I gave at the top on my subtitle there, a shadow fell on my heart then, Gandalf says, uh, when talking about the ring. Um, and the, when his sort of suspicions were coming in. Um, but let's stick with uh, my heart tells me, right? When an elf says, somebody like Elrond, um, um, or something like that, or, or someone like that, right? So Elrond says, my heart tells me this. What is, what is, what's happening? What's happening there? Um, does it mean... 
my emotions incline me in this particular direction. And therefore, I think this is true. Like, no, that's not exactly it, right? Well, like, why? There's so... Basically, it's saying there are two things going on. On the one hand, there's there's my thought, right? Um, when someone says, when, when enough says my heart tells me, they're not saying, I have a notion, right? I have an idea, or I've drawn a conclusion, right? They're obviously not saying that. They're not saying, it stands to reason that. That would be pure, uh, pure sun way, pure thought, right? Pure mind activity, right? Mental activity. What they're saying is, my heart tells me, I have this impulse, right? This deep feeling about this, right? I have a sense of this. It's not quite a foretelling, but it's in the neighborhood of foretelling, right? Something tells me, in something in my deep feelings, and it's a, 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 a something to be trusted, right, is telling me that some course of action should be, you know, like it, it, feeding me some information. My brain is receiving some information from a different source, not the brain right now. Right. Um, and they would say it's my ore, right. It's my, uh, it's my, it's my, it's my heart. It's my, you know, these, my, my deep feelings. Um, but notice that he says that This word, ore, is used of things arising in the mind or entering the mind, right? So again, maybe it comes from your brain. Maybe it just comes into your mind from somewhere outside your mind, right? From somewhere else. And sometimes this is the result of deep reflection. Like in sleep, right? When your mind is continuing to work in this, we were told this happens quite a lot with the elves, right? Where they will shut the rest of the body down, right? And uh, in sleep, let their mind work. Um, sometimes you can emerge from that with this conviction, right? And you will, you might say something like, upon reflection, my heart tells me this, right? But sometimes when your heart is telling you something, you've actually received a message or influence from somewhere else, such as it might have been one of the Valar. You might have, like, had a prayer answered by one of the Valar, even by Eru himself, possibly. Now, indirectly, an influence from the Valar would be indirectly from Eru, but notice he goes on to say, at this period it was supposed Eru even spoke directly to his children. Can happen, right? Can happen, and that was something that was alluded to Um significantly earlier on, right? Um, uh, that is, when we when we were looking at the um, Osanwe Kenta at the beginning, um, nearer to the beginning of it, remember that he was saying that, uh, 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 like, Eru was being pointed to as a um, potential source for a bunch of this kind of communication, potentially. Um but, um, uh, anyway, okay. Um, all right. Anyway, you see how these two things come together? Um, when somebody says, my heart tells me, they might be saying, I have a deep reflection based not upon a rational process, but, you know, 
I have reasons to judge that this is probably the case. It might also be I'm receiving a message right now. I'm receiving an influence. Um, like, hang on, just got a note from Manway, right? Uh, indirectly, right? Or at least you're pretty sure that you might have done, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. It is possible, Mary. It's not saying it's always that way, but yes, it is possible that an elf who says, my heart tells me, means I've received a message about this situation. And you know what I keep coming back to here? Um, I keep coming back to the theory that I was expounding and exploring the Lord of the Rings better than a year ago, way back when we were discussing Gandalf's story in the Council of Elrond. Um, and I'm thinking about Saruman and the White Council. Um, my argument was that the authority... Saruman... Saruman's story about the ring rolling down the river to the sea was not just something put forward as merely probable, right? You know, he didn't, like, do a bunch of, uh, like, diagrams and, you know, statistical studies and, and uh, uh, double-blind experiments and therefore demonstrate that the likeliest thing that would have happened to the ring, physically speaking, would have been its rolling down the river to the sea. Um he asserted it, but he asserted it with authority, and he asserted it with an authority that was accepted by everybody in the room. Everybody in the room. Such that nobody suspected him of lying, and Gandalf himself resisted drawing conclusions about evidence that was in contradiction to that for a long time. Because your evidence has to be really, really good before you draw a conclusion that says the um, the firm conclusion of your academic superior is probably wrong, right? Um, but again, it's it's more than the academic superior thing. What I was arguing was that it sounds like Saruman was asserting a real authority for the, not his own authority, even, right? Um, that he was playing dangerously, right? That he played a, a, a risky card there, which was I know this. I'm not judging. I'm not surmising what happened to the ring. I'm not judging. what You know, a surmise would be one thing, right? Hey, maybe that's what happened, right? A, I guess that's a guess. But anyway, he's saying I'm not guessing. I'm not surmising. I'm not even judging. I know what happened to the ring. Have I not studied these matters? Right? I know what happened to the ring. And with all of this stuff in mind, we can begin to see how that might have gone down. Right? Um, if every time somebody says, my heart tells me, they're at least opening up the possibility. Right? They're, they're, they're basically saying to... Um, they're basically saying to the to, to their audience, right? Uh, I'm going to say this, and there's a chance this is coming straight from the Valar folks. I, you know, I'm, I'm just saying it might be, right? Um, if that's what people understand, or at least may understand you to mean when you say something like that, um, 
somebody in Saruman's position who is willing to lie about that could play that card, right? Could play that card directly. Um, I know this, right? I know that this happened. Not surmising. Not judging. I know. Trust me. This is what happened. Trust me. Not trust my research. Not trust my intellectual capacity. But um, I have received word. And it seems clear that in Tolkien's mind, in these later times, post-Lord of the Rings years, um, this idea of the wise receiving in their hearts guidance of this sort is a thing, right? Is clearly a thing. Um, and yes, Stephen, you're right, that would make Saruman's appeal to the West at the end, his end, uh, even more audacious. It sure would. It sure would. Absolutely. Okay. Um, emotions. More about emotions. You know, he said that, like, ore can be used as the seat of emotion in some sense, kind of like heart, the way that we use heart, but more often in this other way. But then he circles back around to emotions. Emotions are divided into two intertwined things. One, physical impulses provided by the body for its preservation, pleasure, propagation, physical fear, desire, hunger, thirst, sexual desire, the physical side of love when the wedding of Hroa and Fea was most close, etc. Sidebar. I'm not going to do this right now. I'm really pretty sure I'm not going to do this right now. But I'm trying to figure out what different categories of physical impulse he's describing here. Right? So, I mean, like, here was my experience reading that list, right? You know, for its preservation. Okay, all right. I think I know what we're talking about. The preservation of the physical body. So, like, physical fear, right? But then later on, he talks about physical fear. He lists physical fear separately. So, I go, wait, okay. Hang on. So, physical fear and preservation, that's separate. So, what is preservation that's not physical fear? Hang on. And then, pleasure. I'm like, okay, right? There are many pleasures propagation, right? I'm like, okay, we're talking about sexual desire here. I'm tracking with you, right? And then he says, desire. And I'm like, desire for lots of different things. Okay, that's fine. Sexual desire. He then goes to add explicitly sexual desire. I'm like, wait, wait, sexual desire and propagation? Those are different? Different items in the list? What's the difference between sexual desire and the impulses provided for propagation of the body? And then he says, the physical side of love when the wedding was most close. I'm like, that's neither sexual desire nor physical impulse provided for the propagation? I was... Anyway, so I, I'm, I'm not really sure how to kind of break this down. Now, Alyssa, I agree. If we put a colon <clears throat> instead of a comma after propagation, it certainly helps. Right? All right so we say, uh, for its preservation... Uh, physical impulses provided by the body for its preservation, pleasure, propagation, colon. Okay, so if those are the three categories, the propagation, pleasure, and preservation of the, of the body, right? And some of those impulses that tend to those three ends are such diverse elements as physical fear, 
desire, hunger, thirst, sexual desire, and the physical side of love when the wedding of Hroa and Fea was most close. I still don't think I understand the difference between sexual desire and the physical side of love uh, when the wedding of Hroa and Fea was most close. In fact, I'm not even sure I understand what that means. The wedding, the quote-unquote wedding of Hroa and Fea? physical side of love. Um, he's got to be referring to the consummation of elvish marriage there, right? He can't mean the wedding of the Hroa and the Fea to each other, like when a, body, a, a spirit is incarnated in a body, right? He can't be referring, I mean, it sounds almost like, like the wedding of the Hroa and Fea like to each other would mean that, right? But I, this, I think when he means the wedding, when the Hroa and Fea of one person Elf, presumably, is going to be wedded to the Hroa and Fea of the other elf, of, of another elf, right? So we've got, a, we've, got a, we've got a husband and a wife here, and, and we've got the wedding and, and the physical side of love. Um, maybe, maybe, Alyssa, he's talking about the sexual desire and then the... F- is that we've got the uh, the the before the act and the act itself. Um, I'm uh, I'm not really sure. <laughs> I'm not really sure what's happening there. Um, but anyway, this is me not talking about that. Okay, so I'm glad we didn't discuss that. So emotions. Two intertwined things. One, physical impulses provided by the body for its preservation, pleasure, and propagation, including various examples which we are finished discussing. Two, impulses arising in the fea, either from its own nature or as affected by horror, love, slash pity, slash something illegible, anger, hate, hate being a crucial case. It was in later Elderin history a product of pride or self-love, an emotion of rejection or most corrupt revenge. Okay, hang on, let's do that again. It was hate was, that is. We're talking about hatred. Hate was, in later Elderin history, a product of pride slash self-love, an emotion of rejection or most corrupt revenge. Okay, so if you're feeling hatred towards something, there are it has two roots. The em- rejection, right? Like, you, the, it's the emotion that accompanies rejection. You see something, and, you, and that's not always bad, right? It's not always bad. To reject evil is a good thing, right? To reject evil. To see uh, uh, cruelty and reject it is good, right? But you combine that emotion with pride or self-love and then it starts to get more that hatred becomes more complicated right um but of course an even worse case is when it's not just rejection but when it's revenge right when you're when you're trying to get your own back in some way um Okay, so it was in later elder in history a product of pride slash self-love and emotion of rejection or most corrupt revenge on those opposing one's will or desire. Yeah, that's the real problem there, right? So uh, opposing one's will or desire, that's where the pride and self-love comes in, right? If you are able to look at something like cruelty, right, 
um, sort of objectively, not as it is related to yourself, right? Um, and feel hatred for that, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? But when that is all tangled up with the opposition of one's own will or desire, and that's part of the motivating process, right? Um, uh, if you're objecting to cruelty, not just because it is cruelty, but because a person is being cruel to you, right? Which is leading you, your will to be thwarted in some way. You might not be, you might be entirely in the right, as we say, right? You, you it might be entirely, um, you, you might be being done wrong by somebody, right? And yet the way in which your own pride and self-love, your own focus on your own will or desire uh, is kind of influencing and informing that hatred uh, is, a, is a problem. But, he says, there was a real hate, far more impersonal, affecting the Thea only as one of animosity, of things that were evil against Eru, destructive of other things, especially living things. So that's the more like it's possible for hate to be more to be impersonal. Impersonal hate, that's I think that's a good thing. Affecting the Thea only. And it's animosity. Animosity towards things that are evil, things that are against Eru, things that are destructive of other things. Again, so like if you if you feel animosity towards cruelty. Um, that's in other words, it's okay to hate orcs. <laughs> so, all right, now maybe a bad example. Let me not bring up orcs again. Um, though again, in all of the published texts up through and including the Lord of the Rings, it clearly is okay to hate orcs for exactly that reason. When you're hating orcs, what you're hating is merely um, things that were evil against Eru, destructive of other things, especially living things. Right? It was cruelty itself that you were hating when you hated orcs. Um, again, that's clear even in the Lord of the Rings uh, itself. Um, yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Um, so these two classes of emotions, the bodily impulses, which lead to one class of feelings, hunger, thirst, desire, fear, um, and the second group of spiritual impulses, love, hate, anger, pity, horror. Horror is an interesting one. Um, those are also emotions. Um, they're also impulses, but they're impulses that arise not in the Hroa, but in the Fea. They are spiritually, um, of, of, a, of a spiritual and not a physical origin. That would mean, by the way, if you didn't have a body, right, if you were an unbodied elf, for instance, you would not feel any of those first. You wouldn't feel hungry, obviously, or thirsty, right? You wouldn't feel sexual desire. You wouldn't feel physical fear. You wouldn't feel desire at all, right? But you would, you could still feel love. You could still feel pity or anger, horror, hate, right? Those are all spiritual things coming from the Thea. Um, so, okay. All right. That's interesting. Um, into chapter 11 now. Um, this was amazing. 
the um, discussion about Amarth and Umarth, uh, the um, between the words fate and the world, right? Um, uh, Cinderin Amarth, fate. This sense is application is an application of the basic sense, augmented by its formation of imbar, permanent establishment or order. So the, the root word of both fate and the world, right? The, the word for world and the word for fate. The root word of both is the same, which is mbar. And that root word means a permanent establishment or order. Fate, especially when applied to the future that is, the order and conditions of the physical world, or of Ea in general, as far as established and preordained at creation, and that part of this ordained order which affected an individual with a will as being immutable by his personal will. Um, okay, so that's how they would talk about fate in that sense, the order and conditions of the physical world. So what do those two things, have, what do fate and the world have in common? They're where we live. Right. Both of them are the permanent establishment, the order, the conditions under which life happens, right? We're dropped into the world, and this is where we are, and there's nothing we can do about that. And fate is the order and conditions of that physical world, right? Some of those order and conditions are established and preordained at creation, right? We can't escape. There's nothing we can do about it. Um, when we talk about that part of this ordained order that is the way the world works, right? The way God puts things in motion, right? And there's a way things are going to go, right? As far as the world as a whole is concerned. And the part of that ordained order which affects an individual who has a will um, in a way that they can't change it, right? So there's there's nothing we can do about the. So one example, one obvious example about this would be the end of the world, right? There will come a time when Arda is gonna come to an end, right? The elves know this that they're not indeed truly genuinely immortal, right? Um, eventually, Arda is going to cease. It's not up to them when it ceases, right? Uh, Eru's got that figured out. Um, that's preordained. So when elves are thinking about the eventual dissolution of Arda, they're thinking about something which they would call fate, their fate, this fate that controls them. It is immutable by the personal will of any creature that has a will, right? It is just part of the framework in which they live. Um, okay, okay. Um, now, moving on. They would not have denied that, say, a man was... So he's, he's describing fate. How did elves talk about fate? How did elves understand fate and free will? They would not have denied that, say, a man was, may have been, fated to meet an enemy of his at a certain time and place. But they would have denied that he was fated then to speak to him in terms of hatred or to slay him. So you see the situation we've got here? So we've got 
two people meet, one of whom is the enemy of the other, right? Um, and they meet by chance, as it were, right? And when they meet, the one with the grudge kills the other one. That's our imagined scenario here, right? Notice how the elves, what he's saying here is the elves, would they say, well, that was fate? Yes and no. Was it fate that they happened to meet? Yes. That was not in either one of their control. They, neither one of them chose that, right? Neither one of them chose that. But the outcome was not fated, right? Just because they met does not mean that the one dude had to kill the other one, right? They would have denied that the person was fated then to speak to him in terms of hatred or to slay him, right? Fate put him in that situation. It was not in his control. But fate did not govern his actions in that situation. Okay, more. Will, at a certain grade, must enter into many of the complex motions leading to a meeting of persons. That is, okay, so n n notice what he's saying. So hang on. Let's take that chance meeting again, right? Well, hang on a second. Wasn't Will involved there? Can you really say it was just fate that led them to meet each other on that day? Because, like, didn't they each make free choices along the way? Like, I mean, presumably, like, one of them got out of bed that day and could have done something else, right? But they decided to go down that road. They didn't know what it was going to be, right? They didn't realize that they didn't choose to meet the other person, right? But they did choose a bunch of things which led to the meeting, right? So the meeting was not just fate. It wasn't imposed upon them from outside. They weren't, like, transported there or something. They made choices that led to that, right? So he's, that's what he means when he says, will at a certain grade must enter into many of the complex motions leading to a meeting of the persons. But the Eldar held that those efforts of will were free, That sorry, that only those efforts of will were free, which were directed to a fully aware purpose. Yes, they made choices. Were those choices free? Not in regard to the question. Not, if the question is, was this person free or not free to meet this person today? Could they have chosen not to meet that person today? No, because there, there was not an aware purpose there. Yes, they made choices, but they didn't know what the choices meant. They didn't realize that the choice to get out of bed and walk that direction today was going to lead to them meeting their mortal enemy, Right. If they had known that, maybe made a different choice, right? So it, you can only say that a choice is real, the, the effort of will. There still is efforts of will. Again, it's not to say he didn't choose to get out of bed. He totally chose to get out of bed, right? But he did not make a free choice as far as... Me. So is the meeting with the sworn enemy, um, uh, is that still fated? Yeah, yeah, it's still fate. It was not... His will wasn't free. And yet... He made choices all along the way that led to that, right? On a journey, a man may turn aside, choosing this or that way, e.g. to avoid a marsh or a steep hill. But this decision is mostly intuitive or half-conscious, as that of an irrational animal, and has only an immediate object of easing his journey. That is, so, you know, maybe they only met this way because he was, like, taking a shortcut for some reason, or whatever, right? Um, you know, again, maybe he was avoiding, he was avoiding uh, a marsh, or a steep hill going around the hill, right? And he goes around the hill, and what happens? Around the far side of the hill, oh man, mortal enemy. We're standing right there, 
right? Did he make that choice? Yeah, he made that choice. But again, he didn't know what he was doing when he made that choice, right? That choice was a choice, but it was a choice that was still being orchestrated by fate because he didn't know what he was choosing. His setting out may have been a free decision to achieve some object, but his actual course was largely under physical direction. And it might have led to or missed a meeting of importance, right? So there are other, in other words, how does fate act, right? If we say he's making his own choices, but it's also fated. If we say it's fated, we're suggesting that providence is causing it, right? That like God's immutable plan has caused that event because something has to have caused it. They've met each other. What caused that meeting? Was it their will that caused the meeting? Or was it God that caused the meeting? What is the correct answer? Yes, both. Yes, the individual choices that they made, whether it be the big choice to say, hey, I'm going west. That's a big choice and a free choice, right? Or whether it be the less consciously deliberated on choices of, I think I'm going to go around that marsh or around that hill. So this is the route I'm going to end up walking, right? This is the dotted line my feet are going to follow today. He didn't actually plan that out. That wasn't a totally free choice in the sense of like, he thought it through, right? I mean, he's still making it, right? He's still making those choices. But at the end of the day, he meets the guy. So did his will cause it? In one sense, yes. His will is involved. It is a cost. It, it is, it is, a, it is a, but he didn't choose that. He didn't freely choose to meet the dude, right? But the, uh, the example that he's giving about the terrain here is one illustration of how, um, the, how God's providence can bring about a thing even outside of the choosing of the person. Let me finish this and I'll, I'll, I'll continue a little bit. It was this aspect of chance that was included in Umbar. This, the aspect of chance, which is not chance, the aspect of chance, which looks like chance, but it only looks like chance if you don't know the big picture, right? Um, see Lord of the Rings 3, page 360, a chance meeting, as we say in Middle-earth, right? This Gandalf speaking of his meeting with Thorin Oakenshield at Bree right, is the example that we get there. It was a chance meeting. Neither Gandalf nor Thorin intended it, right? Um, okay, now, I've said, of course, um, uh, in my subtitle that it's all in Boethius. Um, what I love about this passage, this is practically straight out of Boethius. He doesn't use the, exactly the same illustration, like the two people meeting, is not Boethius's illustration. Um, but I've never seen any passage of Tolkien that is more directly paraphrasing Boethius than this. Um, if I had been looking for proof or evidence that Tolkien had definitely read Boethius, I mean, I had not many doubts that he had read Boethius anyway. Um, but if I had been looking for evidence, this uh, passage uh, feels to be fairly strong evidence. Um, the, the actual illustration, uh, this is from, I believe, part one of uh, prose one of book five of the Consolation of Philosophy, um, when philosophy is addressing the question of chance. Like, did, are, are you saying that nothing 
Boethius, the, the Boethius character asks, are you saying that nothing happens by chance? <clears throat> that God intends everything that occurs? There's no such thing as chance, even though people talk about things happening by chance all the time? And the answer is, that is correct. There's no such thing as chance, but there are things that look like chance, the things that are called chance. But it's only because the, like the, the uh, and, and does that like rule out the activity of will? No. So the example that Boethius gives, remember it's uh, for those of you who did the Boethius class and some of you apparently have done it more recently, um, are, um, uh, we may remember that Boethius's illustration was treasure buried in a field, right? Um, a, a dude, you know, 50 years ago, buries a treasure in a field and then he dies and the treasure is still buried in the field. And then later on, there's a dude who's plowing the field and he comes across the treasure. Well, that seems pretty lucky, right? I mean, like, here you are minding your own business, plowing the field and treasure, right? You've, you've unearthed treasure. Um, chance, right? Now that's, 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 that's a pretty lucky situation. And Lady Philosophy says, no, it looks like chance, but it only looks like chance because like, this is not something that randomly happened. The person who buried the treasure had reasons. Like, there were causes for burying the treasure there in that particular field. There were also causes for why that person was plowing that field that day. And under those two, with those two things, like being the case, then yeah, like it's inevitable that like that thing would have happened. There was nothing arbitrary or random about it. Right. Um, but neither person intended the result, right? The, the end result of person B gets the treasure, right? is uh, not something that was in the plans of either one of them, right? And so it looks like luck to the people involved. And we talk about chance that way. Um, but it is not, in fact, actually chance. It's not luck. It's um, these, and because th these are all circumstances that are part of the overall plan, right? Why did this person meet the, his, uh, um, his enemy? at this particular place on this particular day, um, because all of the, again, he wasn't choosing it. The other person wasn't choosing it. They didn't set out either one of them to do it, but it happened, right? It happened just like the person finding treasure in the field happened. They, there were causes of each of their actions, right? Whether they be the causes of their own will, like I'm going to set off on a journey in this direction, as he says, or even, uh, the other smaller local, you know, uh, topological uh, um, uh, causes, right? Like I'm going to go, I'm going to walk that direction because I don't want to climb that hill, right? Um, all those combination of, of causes lead to this event. Um, and neither one of them had any idea it was going to happen, but that doesn't mean it's random. That doesn't mean it's arbitrary. It's fate, right? That is what elves would call fate happening. That's what umbar means. Um, now note, does that mean that the choices of the people were constrained, that they had no choice? No. Notice that their wills are fully engaged, right? They, they, uh, they did not foresee the outcome. Again, that guy, the, what the, you know, in Boethius's illustration, guy number two doesn't get up that day going to look for treasure, right? He's just minding his own business, plowing the field, right? Um, but he does find treasure, right? So it's an outcome that he didn't expect, but at no point was his will compelled, right? At no point was he forced to do anything. He just 
made his own choices, just like the dude setting out on his journey and choosing his particular path was minding his own business, doing his own thing. His will was free the entire time. And yet the circumstances are manipulated so that the thing, so this is how the will remains free to act. And yet outcomes are brought about that are what the outcomes that Providence wants to happen. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Cecilia says, what if a uh, person B hadn't bought or gotten hold of the field? Well, then they wouldn't have the treasure. Just as if that person hadn't chosen to set out on the journey, it wouldn't have met the other dude, right? Um, is it possible to imagine a situation in which people could have chosen differently and different outcomes would have happened? Yeah, Ex but they didn't, right? They didn't, and that's the point. A chance meeting, as we say in Middle-earth, right? Is it possible? Could you imagine scenarios in which Gandalf and Thorin didn't meet at Bree that day? Yeah, easily, right? They could either one of them have done any number of things differently uh, and not have been at the Prancing Pony at the same time, right? Um, but they didn't. Uh, the chance meeting did in fact happen. Why did that chance meeting in fact happen when there were, Cecilia, so many opportunities for them to have done other things, right? Um, why is it it begins to look like a conspiracy, right? Like there was some kind of conspiracy that led all of their unknowing free choices to lead to that outcome. Yes, and that conspiracy is called fate. It doesn't compromise their will, um, but it's that's exactly what fate is. Um, uh, yes, yeah. Um, I don't think that Lady Philosophy actually was an elf, Stephen, um, uh, but I think that she clearly has visited with the elves as well. I think she, she probably spent more time with them because they had more time. Um, uh, obviously, Lady Philosophy spent some time with Pengalog, for sure. But um, uh, anyway, okay. Um, let's keep going. Hang on a second. Wait, do I want to keep going? Yeah... I do. No, I don't. One last thing. I want to come back to... We'll come back to it again. But I wanted to raise explicitly the question that I was saying at the beginning that I think is resolved by this section. Um, again, this will come up again later. But you may remember in the Aino Lindelay that passage that talks about the children of Iluvatar talks about elves and men. And um, there's the, it's the passage that begins with um, talking about how Iluvatar gave to men strange gifts, right? One of which is mortality, but the other of which is freedom, right? Um, that they have a freedom to shape events out, you know, beyond the music and that the vow themselves can't predict. Remember that passage? There are some good Tolkien readers who have concluded, who have read this strictly, basically, read that passage strictly. And if you read that passage with a, a, a sort of a very strict application or very strict interpretation, it is possible to read that as saying, humans have free will, elves do not. 
Free will seems to be a gift that God gave to humans, such that the elves are like, whoa, it's so weird how the elves have this, like, freedom thing, right? Uh, we don't get it, but whatever. Um, I mean, it, it, it's possible to read that passage that way. Um, and some have, again, the passage does not say elves have no freedom, right? Elves do not uh, have any free will whatsoever. They, do, they cannot make their own choices. Um, but it is, a, it is possible, based upon the way that that is framed, that that passage is framed, it is possible to draw that conclusion from it, and many Tolkien readers have drawn that conclusion from it. Um, and I've seen many years worth of uh, kind of debates on this question about whether or not elves have free will premised primarily upon that particular passage. Um, it is explicit in the entire context of his discussion of free will and fate uh, in these passages here that elves clearly do have free will. Um, the question of what choices that an elf makes are free, it's explicitly a term here, right? Um, and one of the things that I would point to, so like in, in, in trying to then answer the question, well, then why does it, why does the Ina Lindelay passage seem to imply that? Like, why say it that way there? The thing that I would reiterate, um, uh, thing that I would reiterate, which I've said before, is the Ina Lindelay was written not just from an elvish standpoint, but with an elvish frame. That is, with a frame narrative in which an elf is the speaker of the Ainu Lindelay. Um, and I was when we talked about the Ainu Lindelay passages in Morgoth's Ring, I was saying, I, I personally think, I don't know if I said exactly this sentence, but I might have said something like it. I think that that decision, the decision that Christopher Tolkien, because this was a Christopher, this was an editorial decision in the published in the published Silmarillion. The editorial decision to remove that frame from the Aina Lindelay, especially, is, I think, possibly one of the most impactful editorial decisions that Christopher Tolkien made in doing the Silmarillion. It changes, in my opinion, it changes the, Silmar the Aina Lindelay profoundly to remove that elvish frame. There are things that are said that are ex when they are explicitly attributed to a particular elf speaker who doesn't know what he's talking about when he's talking about humans. He's opining. He's surmising at best about humans. Um, and when you take it out of the mouth of like a concrete elvish character who's surmising and you instead remove that frame and you just give it as a narrative voice, right? So that everything that that speaker says now resonates like it's read by Martin Shaw, especially when it is, right? Which resonates as if it's, you know, the Bible, right? Um, it's like, this is truth. We're like, we are being told the real story behind everything. We are being told, like, this, this is like... The whole context in which it's, I, I, I think it's a profound, profound shift. Um, and I don't think that any one single thing that I have read in 
the entire history of Middle Earth series has had a more profound effect on my reading of any passage in the published Silmarillion than reading the original frame that Tolkien wrote for the Silmarillion. Or for, sorry, for the Ina Lindelay specifically. Um, but um, anyway, remember that that is the context of that. He's not talking about elves because he's just surmising about humans, right? He's not even talking about elves, right? He's just saying how he thinks things are, and he's not necessarily right. Um, but anyway, we'll come back to this. Um, but do elves have free will? Obviously. Clearly. They can. That was always obvious. I mean, it was always obvious that uh, from the Silmarillion narrative, it was always obvious. Like, from the later narrative, it's always obvious that elves had free will. I've never thought it a very good argument that people... I mean, again, I, I, I can respect the people who were basically saying... We have to take this, but we can't just chuck out this passage because we don't like it. The one that says that elves don't have free will. Tolkien said that. It's there. And since it's there, we like need to take it seriously. And even if we don't like it, we need to we need to think it through like we need to like um doggedly pursue that uh to its conclusion. I can respect that. I really can, and I always have, but and nevertheless I've always thought it was uh a, a, a very weak argument. Um, think, for instance, of the time when we can see... Think of what the narrator tells us when um, Feanor makes his choice about surrendering the Silmarils. Right Now, we know the Silmarils are already gone, right? Um, so his choice, in one sense, is not very substantive. But you remember what, how it says... Um, uh, you know, some have said that if he had chosen otherwise then perhaps his later deeds would have been other than they were, right? If we're not talking about somebody who has free will, what are we even talking about in that passage, right? If his choice to surrender the Silmarils are not, is not really, if he actually had no free will, right? So it's not, that's not really a choice. And it affects the choices that he made. But the, oh, wait, hang on, the choices that he made later aren't really a choice. He has no free will there either. What on earth are we even talking about? Like, why even, why, why even read this story if we're going to kind of insist on that, right? It, just, it makes nonsense of the actual story, you know, that we see. Um, so I've never found that argument compelling at all. Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, Tomasi, the problem is you can't, it's hard to make, if somebody is convinced that there is no such thing as free will, it's almost impossible um, to convince them. Because you can always say, uh, so like Tomas was just saying, from the very beginning, some elves decide to go to Amon and some decide to stay. Some change their mind and stuff. So therefore, free will is present all the time. Well, yeah, I mean, unless you say, like, it, it appears to be a free choice. But in fact, their choice was predetermined all the time. Like, they think they're making free choices. But it's not actually true. Like, it's things are coming out exactly as it, as they're supposed to be, because it's not really. Like, once you go in that, like, if you commit to the idea that there's no free will, then you can always explain it, right? I mean, because it could always just be, you know, you can um, you can say, like, well, I think I have free will, and then somebody can tell you, well, that you think that, right? But that doesn't prove that you do have it. I mean, anyway, um, but... Um, but as I say, I, I, I don't, I, I've never believed that about Tolkien. Frankly, I've never believed that about <laughs> in the real world either. Um, but um, 
Uh, Gerald, exactly. The, 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 is the questioning of free will predestined? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's one can always go in. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> Fred Stephen is thinking the same thing. They were just destined to disbelieve in free will. Um, exactly. Exactly. That, that, that makes it better. Um, <laughs> anyway, let's keep going. Um, here, I want to I want to talk about this passage twice. Um, I'll try not to be too long about it because we're running out of time. <laughs> but uh, and my internet is probably going to go out again because it's Wednesday night. But um, uh, and cut me off like it. I think I'm going to have to pre-record a thing like, "Sorry, my internet just went out again," and so this stream ended very abruptly. Um, but anyway, okay, okay. Here, I'll try to discuss this twice quickly. First, I want to talk about what he's talking about. Then I want to talk about how he's talking. I want to talk about the analogy itself, right? Okay. They said that though his likeness is only a, though this likeness is only a likeness, not an equation, the nearest experience of the incarnates to this problem is yet to be found in the author of a tale. The author is not in the tale, in one sense, yet it all proceeds from him and what was in him, so that he is present all the time. Now, while composing the tale, he may have certain general designs, the plot, for instance, and he may have a clear conception of the character independent of the particular tale, of each feigned actor. But those are the limits of his foreknowledge. Many authors have recorded the feeling that one of their actors comes alive, as it were, and does things that were not foreseen at all at the outset, and may modify in a small or even large way the process of the tale thereafter. All such unforeseen actions or events are, however, taken up to become integral parts of the tale when finally concluded. Now, when that has been done, then the author's foreknowledge is complete, and nothing can happen, be said, or done that he does not know of and will or allow to be. Even so, some of the elder and philosophers ventured to say it was with Eru. So this is uh, Tolkien explaining, according to some of elder and philosophers, um, the reconciliation of foreknowledge and free will. Again, he's this is straight out of Boethius. Again, uh, or still... Um, but you see what he's saying, right? Um, does the author foreknow the story? Yes, but that doesn't mean that he is predestined everything, right? He may know... Um, so we have his analogy, the analogy of an author, right? While he's writing a story, he, he knows the plot, right? He knows the character, like he knows what these characters are supposed to be like. Not what they'll do in the story, but what they're, you know, he knows, he knows them, right? Um, how they are as people. Um, but then, like, the authors kind of come alive and they do things that are not foreseen at the outset. Like, he starts writing the story and things start happening that he didn't know. You know, he didn't predict. He did not d predetermine those things. Does that mean when he writes the story at the end that it's not his story? No. It's his story. When it has been done, uh, when uh, these unforeseen actions and events are taken up to become integral parts of the tale, when they're finally concluded, at the end of the day, the story that's told is the story that the author wants to tell. Um, those unforeseen events and actions are taken up into the story. And nothing can happen, be said or done, that he does not know of and will or allow to be. Um, he... he could have changed it if you wanted to, right? Um, this is how 
it was with God. So uh, this is... Um, <laughs> Brian says, unless it goes back later and starts rewriting from the beginning. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so as an analogy of foreknowledge and free will, we can see what he means, right? This is him showing how these things work together. Um, now I want to talk about this passage again. Oh my goodness, how conspicuous is this analogy, right? Um, my good, like this is, this is that Tolkien would think of, I mean, you know, Nancy was, or, uh, yeah, Nancy was just saying, does this analogy imply that fictional characters have free will? Um, yeah, well, that was Tolkien's experience, <laughs> right? I mean, we've seen that time and again, right? We even see him talk about it that way. Like, remember that wonderful letter to Christopher where he's talking about Faramir when Faramir has just appeared? Um, you may remember from our discussion of the history of the Lord of the Rings that he um, originally, Frodo is captured and interrogated by this, like, random Gondorian captain dude um, who then becomes Faramir. He becomes Faramir when they start walking towards Hennethanun and they start talking. Well, no, sorry. Faramir starts talking, right? And he starts talking and he won't shut up. And um, and Tolkien writes that delightful letter to Christopher saying, you know, I met this character named Faramir, um, but if he doesn't stop talking soon, he's going to have to be cut out and moved to the appendices, right? Um, he talked about his characters like that all the time. I mean, almost all of his characters seem to have free will. Um, I love, just love the fact that this experience, this experience that one of his, the actors in his story comes alive, as it were, and does things that were not foreseen at all at the outset and may modify in small or even large way the process of the tale thereafter, like some black rider might come walking down the road. Like all of a sudden you didn't invite him. You have no idea who he is or what he's doing or what it means for the story. But all of a sudden there's a black rider there. And now like, now what? Right. Um, Anyway, like Tolkien is so convinced, like this, this is so much a part of his authorial experience that he uses it as an illustration. He, you know, many authors have recorded the feeling that, right? I mean, like he, he assumes this is how it works for everybody. Uh, like this is, this, he takes this as such a normal part of the authorial experience that he uses it as an illustration. And I find that absolutely adorable. Um, absolutely adorable. Now, I believe it. I'm not saying I disbelieve him in any way, right? Um, I, I, I couldn't, um, I couldn't help but think of what, um, like J.K. Rowling would say about this, right? J.K. Rowling be all like, "My foreknowledge is absolute," right? Whatever. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm again, I am not in any way questioning. Uh, Tolkien here. I absolutely believe not only that this happens for him, but that it happens for many other authors. I totally believe this. Um, I just think it's kind of, it just, it's as it's very telling. It's, um, it's an extremely conspicuous. And now it, it tells us exactly how dominant of an expression this is. And notice how this gets reflected within his own story as well. This is how the music of the Ainur works, right? Did Eru write the music that he get, you know, is the music of the Ainur his music? Yes. Yes. And no. Right? 
that independent sub-creators are involved, making their own choices, right? Um, that's part of Eru's act of creation itself, right? That's, that's coded into Eru's act of creation. It's how, like, that kind of delegation is how Eru operates. Uh, I was going to say from day one, but how do you say day one in the Simus Halls? Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, one wonders which came first for Tolkien. That experience as a writer or that concept in the story, I'd almost have to think the experience as a writer, right? Um, so some of the Eldarin philosophers ventured to say it was with Eru. Yeah, yeah. Um, that when creatures, elves and men and Valar as well, you know, Ainur as well, um, when they make choices when they exert their wills as their wills are left free, um, do they change? The, does it matter? Do they really impact the story? Yeah, it does. Absolutely it does. Does that mean that Eru's caught on the hop? That Eru is, uh, is um, uh, you know, thwarted in his plans? No, not at all. Not at all. The author's for when uh, the author has taken up these unforeseen actions, and they've become integral parts of the tale. Then the author's foreknowledge includes those. And of course, what's the final missing piece? The final Boethian missing piece here that the author analogy can't give. The author is outside of time, right? Um, he's describing this from the analogy is described from the perspective of the author who's ha who, to whom it's happening in time, right? There is a moment when the author's like, holy cow, what's happening, right? Um, that's, uh, that's a moment when the author's winging it, right? When the author is not in control, right? But by the time the story is told, the author is in control, right? Those unexpected things have now become part of that author's story, Right? Um, that's what he means when he says the foreknowledge is complete. But if we take the time question and we now think about it from the timeline of the characters within the within the plot of the narrative, right? Um, you know, the 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 characters in chapter four, right? Um, the story's already complete, right? The foreknowledge of the author is complete. I probably shouldn't be holding the Silmarillion to illustrate this and talking about the foreknowledge of the author, but, you know, work with me. Um, uh, it, was the, it was the book that was right there. Um, uh, from the point of view of the characters, Eru knows the whole story, right? And just as the author or a reader can look at the back, right? And see uh, how things turn out reasonably, reasonably well. Right. Um, uh, okay. Depends on your point of view. Depends on who you are, I guess. But um, but anyway, you see, whereas a character in the story, on the one hand, they're acting in unforeseen ways. They have caused things in the story. It's like 
the character has made choices, right? The character has spontaneously done stuff that you weren't in control of. Or at least that's the perception. That's the feeling on the part of the author, right? Um, or in the case of Iluvatar, it would be real, right? And yet, that those spontaneous acts by the character, they're part of the story at the end of the day. Like, books published, there it is, right? Um, the story is complete. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. One more. Let's see if uh, fate will allow me to do one more. Because it's a short slide. Totally easy. Let the music of the Ainur be an ancient legend from Valinorian days. First stage. The music or concert of voices and instruments. Eru takes up alterations by their created wills, good or bad, and adds of his own. Second stage. The theme now transformed is made into a tale and presented as visible drama to the Ainur, bounded but great. Eru had not complete foreknowledge, but after it his foreknowledge was complete to the smallest detail, but he did not reveal it all. He veiled the latter part from the eyes of the Valar, who were to be actors. So notice he immediately makes the connection to the music of the Ainur too. And notice how he maps this onto the two stages of the creative and sub-creative process that he describes in the Ainulindale, right? Um, the music itself is when we see, it's like that moment when the author is writing and the characters are acting up and doing unexpected things, right? And the author's like, a black writer just walked down the road, just came down the road, I don't know what's going on, right? That's like Eru when Melkor starts his discord, right? Um, then he shows, he says, behold your minstrelsy, and he shows them the vision. The visible drama. He shows it to them all together. Now he's giving them the whole book. Does it still represent their choices? Are their choices restricted? Is he going back and changing them retroactively? No. What's he done? He's incorporated all of those choices that they made in the music and he's written the book. He's made the story that is incorporated and brought in all of those things, but which story comes to the ending that he wants. It tells his story at the end of the day. But he doesn't let them read the last chapters, the, va the Valar, right? He doesn't want them to know the whole story. He shows them the first bunch of chapters, but not the whole book, right? As a little side note there. Um, that's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. All right. Um, I'm pushing my luck now, uh, but I wanted to complete the thought because I'm pretty sure... Yes, we can start there next time. All right. Well, as usual, we got less far than we hoped, but this is big stuff. Uh, so uh, I, who didn't expect fate and free will to take a little while to talk about? But anyway, thanks, everybody. Be back again next week. Uh, I look forward to finishing this up and moving towards uh, uh, moving towards some, uh, some other pretty fun stuff uh, that we're going to get to here before the end of part two. All right. Uh, including back to the... Uh, Back to back to Finway and uh, Muriel before the end. So we'll see if we get there. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night. Bye now.